Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about pet peeves of technical problems. These are the red flags that you know will cause you or others pain down the road. We would like to thank 42 Lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 Lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Jumpstart your SRE journey today with the experts at 42lines.net. So these pet peeves are, are the flags that we see that make you groan a little bit about how much harder this particular problem set is going to be in this particular environment, and you've seen this pattern before. This is not stuff like a coworker cancels a meeting five minutes before, or somebody's using chat speak in their their chat client and doesn't type out y-o-u-r and you know those kinds of things this, this is much more of the the technical problems these are problems that we see that indicate larger issues further down and could cause people to to leave well and or cause you to lose sleep All right. <laughs> at least your sanity and i'm going to dive in first um my first major pet peeve is when people say oh, the code is the documentation. And while the code is a great reference manual for your infrastructure's code or the application or whatever it is you're doing, the code, if the code is the only documentation you have, you're missing things like runbooks or methodologies or the history of why a decision was made. You're missing a lot of context and all you have is basically a running configuration that you have to go on an archeological tour to decipher. And if that's the only documentation that you have, to me that, that points at a very fragile environment that is going to be very hostile to come up to speed in. And I find this specifically important when you're you're pointing to the code that runs in your CI, CD, your automation systems that you know, automates tasks and removes toil. And folks pointing to that as that's the documentation for how we work our processes. Yeah, I've had to troubleshoot some things like that before. and. As you mentioned, Brendan, context is key, and it's so difficult sometimes to because to, maybe, uh, for instance, Jenkins is running something. Well, Jenkins has its own environment that it stands up first, and it's you're missing five pieces that it requires to even execute those steps. So if you're trying to maybe troubleshoot it or even possibly run it by hand or uh, enhance it, it's hard to replicate that. And then you have to go digging in Jenkins and then have to go dig through all this other stuff. And so, yeah, I really love it when there's documentation around uh, code or, or any process. It's just really, really hard sometimes to jump into a new organization or anything else and look at code when, oh, these aren't even the coding standards I'm used to. Or, you know, it, they have a different organization and, no, it's not. It's you have real documentation is real documentation. You can write good code. You can write code that that is readable and and helps. But there's just way too much more to it than to say the code is the documentation. And and I think this has been a a big uh, stumbling block for open source for I guess I guess since the dawn of time, right? Is that uh, you'll you'll get you'll find this amazing project on GitHub and. Uh, you're like, well, I just don't know how this one thing works or something, and, and someone just says, well, just just read the code. That self-explanatory, and maybe to some wizards who you know can 
code in practically any language, yes. But other times it's like, man, I you know maybe it's a language you don't know that that well, or uh, you know you you see uh, back to your point, Ken, it's maybe not necessarily the standard you're used to or how you would have done it, and so you're you're really having to try and figure reverse engineer something just to even understand it. My other big piece of this is especially when you have a large or complicated um, environment or a tool that can do lots of different things. It's knowing the nuance of how and why to use the tool that is critical. And so yeah, you can tell me what all the flags mean, but how do I use them? Which ones are safe to use together? Which ones cause irrevocable data loss? You know, these things are what you want to be digging into before you ever start trying to read the code and understand why it does what it does. You need to know what the purpose was. And well, when you brought this up, it made me think of Java docs. And I mean, I've written significant Java code and, and you, and the Java doc functionality is absolutely fantastic to build in documentation, but it's reference. You, you there's almost no way to figure out, you know, how you use something from it. But once you have the real doc, real docs on how you use it, looking up the stuff in JavaDocs helps them tremendously, but you can't start there. So one of my pet peeves, and I get asked to build this really often because of my experience with, you know, alerting and monitoring. My biggest pet peeve is auto-remediation. But Jack, if, that's the holy grail. No, no, it's not. So if you... You're scraping metrics, you run them through some sort of TSDB, you evaluate some rules, you generate an alert, you send that off to PagerDuty, you want some sort of auto-remediation, you know, hooks involved in there, but you're probably already like two VPC hops away from where your services live. It's a really very large attack surface to work your... Uh, your monitoring system, you know, back in to make calls back into your application. And usually the desire for auto remediation, you screams out to me that either a you're over alerting, you have alerts on any possible problem that might ever happen, or B you're not managing the life cycle of your applications. Well, including making sure that you, know, when they fail, they fail in a safe way. So My, you know, I've definitely written daemons that look at applications and, and do automatic repairs to them. And Kubernetes gives us some great hooks there. But your alert system isn't the place to do auto-remediation. That's the place when you need a human now. Well, my my first thought on this is if you can detect it well enough to have an alerting system to go in and do it, why can't the code just detect it and heal itself or deal with it at the source? Like you said, it letting it boil through well, report to kubernetes i'm not healthy there are situations yeah. in which you don't have control over the code either the third-party library or the developer team that is working on that particular chunk of code has some other business critical function and so there are times at which you can't just go fix the bug in the code because often these in my experience really are bugs in the code somewhere but i do agree with jack that this is the kind of thing that you should be detecting as close to the source of the problem as possible and it, that's that's the place you write your automation and instrumentation. That before, yeah, usually I'd write a sidecar, some sort of operator that, that manages some of those aspects around that application. Yeah, before it gets to the level of PagerDuty noticing, it should have already figured out that there's a problem and tried to fix it at least once. Um, I think this problem or this, this flag really comes out of one of those old Nagios-isms where Nagios could try to exec commands on your behalf to go do things 
when it got the first, you know, the first critical level threshold violation to see if you could automatically repair it. Um, but remember that Nagios was written in the early 2000s when a lot of the tooling we, that we have now we didn't have. And so you ran lots of different processes on one box. You ran lots of things together because you didn't, and a lot of organizations didn't have the choice. And so it's a bad pattern that people have gotten used to and kind of gotten embedded in. And it's, it's not a good one. And I find if you're trying to automate away your, your pager duty burden, that's because you've got a pager duty burden, which underscores other problems in your organization. So my biggest one is not keeping up with current mindshare in the industry. And I'm not necessarily meaning chasing trends, but at the same time, you just can't languish behind and stick with older practices. Uh, mainly one, because it's going to be difficult to, to hire. Like if you, need to, if you end up growing and you need to hire another person, if you're still using server-side JavaScript, for example, which I have done years and years and years ago, uh, it kind of, although that's maybe a bad example because now we've got Node.js and we've come full circle, but um, <laughs> it's going to be hard to hire talent for that. And and also, it's just not uh, as uh, fun or uh, challenging to run that infrastructure. And, and again, I, I guess I want to just underscore that I'm not saying that you need to chase trends and if the next thing that replaces Kubernetes, for example, comes out, you should go jump on that immediately. But if you're not already running Kubernetes, I think there may be a, not necessarily a problem, but you know, if you're trying to run containers and you're not using Kubernetes or some container orchestration and you've written your own, then I think there's a problem. Well, th this ties back I heavily. think you make a point, Jared, that I really want to underscore, and that's you need to plan for your team growing and you should be able to hire people with skill sets to run your infrastructure. If your infrastructure is super custom or has lots of, of uh, local bits that haven't, that haven't moved forward into the future, into current mindshare, uh, you can't hire for that. You have to learn that on the ground. This also, well, also ties in... very heavily into um, what Jack was saying about auto-remediation, auto that as tools move forward, you should be continuously evaluating the new tools and see if they solve a problem you have right now better. And it doesn't mean you jump on the new shiny every time, but it means when somebody says, actually, there's a better way to do this. We don't have to spin up an entire VM. We can run this as a Docker container. You go, wow, that actually, that could reduce complexity significantly. And it, it adds other problems, but it could really solve some of my problems. And then you, you iterate forward. This whole business is really geared towards iteration. And if you wait 10 years between changing your tech stacks or adding new components, you're not iterating. You're doing these huge jumps. And that is even more painful and more um, risk prone. And to, to build off of that is, you know, there's a reason why things become de facto standards and they're the new hotness. You know, you don't need to jump every time, but there's a lot of times some real benefits to them that are probably going to be benefit you as well. That I let's talk about looking at them and maybe moving them and moving to them. Yeah, not everything is a you know a perfect fit, but generally they're going to come with benefits that are going to be worth making the jump. And yeah, if you wait too long, it's tech debt and it's hard. Yeah, I really love using uh tools that other people have built to solve problems versus building my own. I mean, it's always fun to, to solve a, a, a deep problem doing it yourself. 
But then the only problem is if, if you're on the receiving end of that, if you come into a job where someone has solved all these problems with all these various scripts or, or some giant program that they wrote themselves, while it's cool and maybe you can even pad the resume some, uh, for people coming in, it can be difficult. Whereas if you're using standards and especially uh, tools that are in play currently, people could come in and hit the ground running and your org can can scale that much quicker and, and better, honestly. Yeah, the whole dream of having a new employee go on call relatively soon or push code their first day or whatever it is comes down to using industry agreed upon standards and kind of using the tool chain that other people are kind of used to and, and commonly available. So if you have this amazing, bespoke, deeply technical system that other people have to take weeks or months to spin up on, you're hindering your organization's ability to scale. What happens when your lead engineer quits? What happens when somebody gets sick? What happens when somebody goes on you know, family leave? Well, suddenly you're without that person and it takes a long time to get back up. A super keyword is velocity and enabling that velocity in your development. If your backend processes are super custom, they tend to they really tend to slow down operations, which slows down development. And that's not where you want to be either. So this one comes from something that was very indicative at a, a former job of mine, where every night we got alerted because something was at a CPU was at a hundred percent. There was no problem. It was just working hard. A hundred percent CPU usage is not necessarily a problem, but in fact, it's normal. It's efficient. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm my, my response is good. I paid for this damn thing. I wanted to do some work instead of sitting around, but it now was what's also, the load on that box. Yeah. And that was the thing. It was indicative of, upper or not even upper management the management over the team making decisions that didn't make sense we so, were forced to have this alert by somebody else sometimes having a hundred percent cpu is a bad thing because i mean you run out of capacity or headroom and you can't scale further up if you need more but it also means that you are working hard so when you have say an image an image rendering pipeline you want every core to be as saturated as possible because you're paying for those cores. And the whole point of the thing is that you're CPU bound. So you want to dump as much as you can into those CPUs as possible. Exactly. You're paying for them whether you're using them or not. So yep. having a hundred percent CPU be a problem is yeah, that that's not a good indicator because there are environments where it is crucial to run at a hundred percent for as long as you possibly can. And it, and that's the thing is in this particular case it was there wasn't other work that it was holding up and that's somebody else just said what's the load it's the difference between load and cpu there wasn't load it was the machine was just busy doing what it was supposed to be doing on the other side of that um the log arch archival system that i built for a previous job the boxes that were doing the archives were both receiving the logs and using the same pool of CPUs that we're using to receive and parse the logs and write them to disk to compress them. And if you let the compression step take 100% of the CPU, you starved the ingestion side of it. So you had to balance it. And in that case, 100% would have been bad. But everything, everything, everything is about perspective. 
Well, and that's that was the point with this one is it was a single metric that oh it's bad. Well, no, you it should have been looked at it in a wider lens. Yeah, by itself okay. it's not bad. In, in the log archiving system, the thing that was bad was new logs were being delayed, right. and that's bad. Not that the CPU was at one hundred percent. Ah, I detect you're measuring the time it takes for a job to get through your ingestion pipeline. Smells like... Is that an SLO? (laughs) Okay, at least I made Jared laugh. So my next... My next red flag is when somebody has built a workflow that cannot be automated or easily repeated, and conversely they insist on making manual changes to an automated workflow that somebody else has automated. It's it's two sides of the same coin. And both of those I find very, very troubling. And they, they kind of anger me that I want to say it was the sun cluster installer um, back in the early two thousands. There was no reasonable way that, that you could automate an installation at the time. You could, you, you could automatically install the OS. You could do a bunch of other things. But the installer for the Sun Cluster software itself refused to let you do automated installations. Um, and it's possible that I didn't have the right documentation in front of me. But it always felt like a really nasty stop. That you're building things automatically and then everything comes to a screaming halt while a person walks over to a console and types and answers a question. Yeah, I, uh, so, I read enough. This... Oh, oh, go ahead. Well, just funny enough, I automated the Sun Cluster installation at a previous position, and it took a lot of expect scripts and a lot of back and forth. It was in in Puppet, and it was a nightmare because it was very interactive. Okay, Puppet and expect scripts. Yeah, no kidding. It was a (sighs) lot of really bad decisions to make it work. And, and that's exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about here about pet peeves. This is, that is, is a poster child of you're doing it wrong. If you can't automate an installation of something, ooh, you got a problem. Yeah. And, and in the same vein of, you know, I, I, I had uh, early on one of my first bosses, uh, he didn't like that I used uh, the double ampersand in, like with Bash, you know, running multiple commands, because he was like, well, what happens I guess he liked seeing the output and and manually typing out the command again and and so I was just like but but this will only run if the other one succeeds. It's not like I'm doing the um semicolon or whatever where I'm I'm just going to run the next command and does it willy-nilly. Uh but it was almost like he just didn't trust it. And I I think that comes into the vein. to the most basic flow control. Yep, exactly. And um you know, it's like well you know, you at some point you have to trust the, your tooling. If you would just set dash e, uh, you'd be fine, Jared. <laughs> I, no comment. <laughs> Why not pipe yeah. fail? Why not dash x? Why not anyway? Exactly. My next pet peeve is magic. <laughs> I don't like processes, whether. You know, they're invented in-house or come from your cloud provider or whatever that are somehow magical or otherwise seem to sidestep the rules of reality. Um, A super specific example that I stubbed my toe over was using AWS's uh, network load balancers, uh, NLBs. And 
they use what I refer to as port bending to direct the traffic to a set of backends. So the, the backends receive TCP connections as if they came from the original client out on the internet. And so the NLB is, is basically transparent. The problems started to come in when I also use the NLB to use uh, TLS termination. So the NLB decrypted the TCP connection, yet mangled the packets. So the packets appear to come from the original sender, original client on the internet. And my backend servers couldn't enforce if if that connection had come through TLS termination or had that connection come from somewhere else. I couldn't tell the difference. And that was definitely something I didn't expect. Had to dig into the docs to figure out what kind of networking foo is going on here. Obviously, I really expected those that TLS connection to force those uh, TCP sessions to be proxied. But, um, yeah, magic. Jack, I'm guessing you never really liked Ruby on Rails then, barring the language itself. Jared, I always make fun of you for Ruby on Rails. Although that's more convi- uh, convention over configuration than, than necessarily magic. But I know that the first time learning it, it does seem like magic. There's, there's automation and, you know, sort of coming with a pre-built framework. And then there's things that don't behave as you logically expect. If you've intercepted my TLS connection, um, I expect to be able to know that. For me, a lot of the ORMs, um, software frameworks are like this, where there's some kind of magical incantation or magical path you have to follow. And as long as you stay exactly within that path, everything just works and it's it's perfect and it's happy. But the moment you deviate even the slightest bit, because you need to do a custom resource or you need to do a custom call out to something else, everything starts to come apart. And I think that's my problem with Ruby on Rails, that as long as you're doing something that fits that model, it's amazing. But once you start doing other things, it gets really hairy. And this is not yeah, Rails. It's kind this of that, because is... each, each solution you're building for a specific client, there's a reason there. There's a reason you're building that solution, which you know, is, is where the magic sauce is. Yeah, I, I agree. So, and, and I like that you really, an ORM is really the biggest thing. I know that active record is very specific and I know it's frustrated a lot of people when uh, they know SQL and they're like, well, why can't I just do this SQL right here? And uh, or thankfully, they're adapting an existing database to it. And then you have all of these weird layers of, oh, well, in the old system was built this way. And so we have to do all this weird mapping to get it into active record. Right. Exactly. Well, and a specific case in point was working on something that front-ended for active record and I was working on the back end and active record was forcing an ORM view onto the data that didn't match the data. Yep. It just didn't work. And, you know, no, I can't return it this way. That doesn't exist. I don't have that piece. <laughs> Anyways. Yes, not a fan of active record either. <laughs> Uh, my next one is uh, it's sort of a, a, a mindset that I've had a, at a few times changing over to different jobs, but it, it's something I've tried to work out of, and that is, uh, you know, this method or this piece of technology was fine at my last job. Why not here? And and it really comes to meaning take the time to understand the current needs, requirements, or scale at at your new position or at at the place, right? And that's just. 
uh, something that I've really had to, to, to learn over my career. And that is, you know, each place is different and there is reasons why people have made decisions in the past. Uh, you know, I know we make jokes on the show and I'm sure everyone has when they get to a place, you know, like, what were they thinking? Why, why is this done this way? And while, yes, sometimes things are done very egregiously and, and horribly, a lot of times their hands were tied and they, it was the best situation, best for the situation they could do. And this almost kind of goes back to the, a little bit to the, you know, the documentation aspect. Uh, and that is, you know, understanding why decisions were made and not just coming in and saying, oh, I know better. I, I use this tool and to solve that problem. And while, yes, it may solve the problem, it may not solve the exact problem at that position that you're at currently. I mean, I've been in places where folks ask me, why did you make these these decisions? And the answer is, I didn't have time to make better ones. I knew there was a better path, but I had three months to do eight months worth of work. And so that was one of the corners that I had to cut. I'm yep. so sorry. If you want my notes on how to do it the right way, it's a partial solution, but it'll get you down the path. I did think about it. I'm not an idiot. I just <laughs> couldn't do it. I couldn't do it this time. I, I had to do something else there. As somebody who just took a new position, I am doing my best to not do this of, hey, we could do it better this way because this is how I did it elsewhere. No. But the flip side is sometimes, well... I was someplace else that we solved this problem. This is what we did. I'm trying to find the line of suggesting and using, you know, past as an example to solve a new problem versus, you know, coming in and saying, hey, this is wrong. Here's how we did it, uh, This, which is a better way. I struggle with that, too, because when I work with a new client or similar, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to learn why did they solve this problem this way? What were the reasons behind it? As especially as I'm, you know, ramping up, usually the reasons behind it are are very informative about a lot of things within the organization, both technically and socially. And so what I, you know, try to kind of balance is, you know, I don't want to lose my honeymoon period and you're sitting there trying to figure out all this stuff. But I don't want to come in, you know, as Ken said either, and says, you know, this is this other way is the way to solve this problem. Why did you do it this way? So there's a phrase that floats around my house um, in dealing with the children's that is curious, not furious. And it's the, the approach that I find that works the best is you say, hey, I notice we're doing it this way. Is there a specific reason we're doing it that way? Like, I, I'm curious what the thing is that we're doing and why we, we chose that approach. And in that discussion, you can offer and say, so I had been doing it a different way, but we had a different set of constraints. Are those constraints different enough that it invalidates what I was doing? And this gives the other team or the other part of the team the space to say, okay, they're not just throwing out my idea. They're not telling me that I'm an idiot. They're not rejecting it wholesale. They're bringing their experience to the table. I mean, we hired them in part for their experience. So we can have a brief discussion about... You know, we, we, we went with, you know, HA proxy versus NGINX for these reasons. And you know, okay, well, those are the reasons. My trouble is when somebody comes at it either in anger or they won't stop bringing it up. That's when, that's when I just get, mm. Yeah, when, you, when you're no longer professional about it. All right, I guess I'm next. Um, this is one that I, I'm almost bad for stealing it from somebody, but it does relate to some other things I, I've been bumping into is 
all capacity issues can be solved with a lot of scaling. <laughs> oh, we're at running out of, we need to throw this in Kubernetes and just let it scale. That's how we'll solve that we're running, we're bumping against the ceiling. And no, a lot of times scaling it out brings another set of issues and it's not free. Yeah, does, does your wallet have auto-scaling turned on? <laughs> God, I wish it did. You can do that? But it really, it, it, it's a mindset of, I'm not going to even look at the problem. I'm just going to throw hardware at it. And yep. that's not, no, the problem is probably much more nuanced. You really need to look at the problem. Maybe maybe it's not even really a capacity issue. Maybe you've got a problem that's causing it to use more capacity than it needs. Maybe you're dealing with state on disk, and sticking that in an auto-scaling group doesn't replicate state back and forth. Especially if the app isn't designed for that. Yeah, I, case in point, previous job was using uh, proprietary software, not ours, that as you scaled, each node would then interconnect with every other node, basically a mesh. Guess what? There was a ceiling on how far you could autoscale because then the communication load got to the point the thing just couldn't go any further and would bog itself down and stop. You mean you can't scale infinitely? Well, this is also kind of akin to what Jared was talking about in in the last one, that if you don't stop and understand the problem and the solution is just make it bigger, you're you're not fixing engineering resource by autoscaling. You are temporarily increasing capacity while you figure something out. And there are times when you have to do that because it's a business thing and you have to just keep it running for now. But you have to pay the piper eventually. When you have hundreds of millions of metrics or when you have you know a memory leak that's eating up gobs and gobs of memory, the solution isn't to add more memory to the system. The solution is to fix the memory leak. Try using a different language besides Node.js. <laughs> I feel like operating systems have gotten to that point, though. It's, it feels like, you know, 10 years ago, they they just ran faster. And now it's like, you got to have how much gigs of RAM for an operating system run smoothly now? And Do you remember especially... how much faster the Linux 2.0 kernel was? Or was it the <laughs> 2.2 kernel compared to the previous release? I mean, this I'm I'm really looking at at macOS versus Linux at this point. So the the last flag I have on my list, my last peeve here is people who use reboot as a problem solving solution. It's like it, it's the it's the first or second step in their problem solving handbook is they say, oh, let's just turn off and back on again. And I know that it's funny because of the IT crowd, but it's not. It, it demonstrates a lack of understanding of the system. It demonstrates that you don't have a grasp on what the system's actually doing, which means you're never going to get mastery of it and you're never going to solve the root problem. If you just reach for the reboot every time, ooh, that, that's pain. And this applies even in Kubernetes with containers. Uh, hey, there's a problem. Just restart the container. I think it dovetails with, and I hate to I hate to be the old man yelling at kids to get off the lawn, but <laughs> it's the throwaway culture. Don't try to fix it; just get rid of it. And I don't know if which side's pushing the other, but I mean, it is what with Kubernetes and and so much uh, technology now. It's designed to be stateless. It's designed to restart quickly. That 
oh, it's a, it's cattle, shoot it and move on. Well, and, and I think, th- but the, the big point is that if it's designed that way, you know, that's, I, I think that's totally fine to, to have that mindset, uh, especially if you have health checks and things like that. And then you can, you know, one thing you need to look for is a job constantly restarting because then you've got a problem. But if you try to just use that methodology for like, especially states, stateful applications, like a database, yeah. for instance, or something like that, then you have real big problems. Well, I would argue that in production, your lightweight stateless application that's running in Kubernetes, you don't want it to sit there in error state waiting for somebody to come and inspect it and debug it. You want it to be killed and have another one take its place quickly. But you also want to have enough diagnostic and traceability hooked up to it that you get the error messages out of it and you can go back to a development environment or a staging environment and reproduce the error and then find the bug. And if the thing you do is always just, oh, well, it's unhealthy, I'm just going to kill it. You're never going to make the quality of your software any better. You're never going to make the quality of your service any better because all you're doing is blindly restarting. And you throw, you're throwing away information about what was going on. I'm in, brother. Yeah, I don't have a problem with doing it, but it shouldn't be blindly do it, forget about it. No, if it's happening a lot, you should know about it. You should be metricing it and know that this container's restarting this often. There's a problem and go do it. And so if, you, yeah, if, if you don't have telemetry on your process and you're just blindly restarting things, the next thing you should do is add telemetry. So the next time it dies, you have stack traces or you have something that you can start working from and say, what happened? And one of the standard alerts like Jared that I apply to a container new service is how fast is it restarting? How many restarts have happened in the last hour? Yeah, while you plan for that, that shouldn't be a a normal uh, operating procedure. So my last one, and it's one that sets me off. If it gets used too much, is it's in the wiki. And I did have a position where anytime I ask a question, it was, it's in the wiki. And more often than not, it wasn't. Or it was too hard to find, or it was out of date, or, or, or. And Well, searching in Confluence <laughs> is such an art. Yeah. <laughs> but it was one of these things of the amount of time I burned having to find it in the wiki versus the person that I asked that knew could have answered it in short order. Yeah. I'm saying it's in the wiki is fine if your wiki is well maintained. Yeah, I was but about to say episode. It, it would be it's, <laughs> it's always funny to find it and then see the last modified date like two years ago. Exactly. You know, it it does no good to say it's in the wiki for me to spend, you know, the time to find out that, oh, here's the page and it's useless because it's out of date. So not only do I then have to go research it on my own, it's it, I burned the research time and the search time. You know, answer the question I've been there. or update the I've wiki. I've done that. It's hey, I ran these two commands. They an error happened. It blew up. You know what's going on here? Yep. Oh well, how to do that is in the wiki. I go search in the wiki. And I read halfway down the wiki page, and there's like two lines of, run these two commands. (sighs) Yeah, to me, this is the corollary to the first point that I made about pointing people at code as of his documentation. Your wiki has to be maintained to be documentation. And several jobs ago, I kid you not, there were four or five canonical sources of information 
and they were overlapping and they were contradictory and some had been updated and some hadn't because certain teams didn't like one of them or liked one more than another. And so looking through documentation to find an answer was an absolute travesty. It was it was a terrible process and nobody wanted to do it. And so there was a lot of tribal knowledge or you could go look at the code. And all of these are bad. Documentation has to be maintained. It has to be up to date. It has to curated. be curated. And it has to, yeah, that's because yes. it's, it's much like um, Jira tickets, which is a whole other thing. You should have people whose primary function is to go through your documentation and test the run books and validate how old things are and harass teams that don't write documentation because it is critical. Or just maintain the documentation in a structured format make sure things are updated, make sure they're not, you know, empty runbook pages, you know, how to take care of page X, empty page. Um, it, it doesn't even really require a technical person. One job I had, our manager, anytime we had an alert, the after action in the morning, his last sentence of the after action was, did you update the wiki? And that's good. Did you make any changes? Did you do anything that needed to be documented? Every time he asked that question, and it didn't take very long before we always made sure we had already done it because it was much more difficult to do it the next morning or a couple of days later when the knowledge wasn't fresh. So Pedro goes off, do the work, and then update the documentation to match the new reality. And he drilled it in us, and it got to the point where we had a good wiki where somebody could say, it's in the wiki, and you could go there and be confident that that was accurate yeah one of my effort one of my preferred patterns is i've been paged it's late at night i am too tired to write coherently for the wiki and so i either dump it into group chat or i send it into a group email or i just put my notes into the bottom of the wiki page and say here are my notes these are the steps that i took we should and then tag the people we should talk tomorrow about validating if there were better ways to do this if there was a cleaner solution if this should be the codified way we move forward. So at least my my ramblings at four in the morning after a stressful event are saved somewhere and not just on a text file on my desktop that will get lost and forgotten about in six months from now. Somebody says, so how do you fix the replication issues? And you're like, I, I've got something somewhere about that. And to be clear, there are other issues that are your pet peeves. These are the things that we have come across in our professional lives that have caused us pain. And we've seen enough times over and over again that we think they're worthwhile for your audience or for your company, for your organization, for your team. These are going to be different. And some of these may not be flags for you. Some of these may not cause pain for your organization, depending on how things are structured. But take the time to think about how your organization runs and what would make it better and look at patterns that came from your past or coworkers past to see which pieces you can say, Hey, I, we should not be doing this. This, this is bad and start changing your behavior. We would like to thank 42 lines for sponsoring this episode. 42 lines is a DevOps consulting firm specializing in observability, cloud migrations, service reliability, engineering, cost control, security practices, and team mentoring. Jumpstart your SRE journey today with the experts at 42lines.net. 
please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brenda Dusendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Auto scale your career with the Practical Operations Podcast.